And uh, this Christmas, as we lead up to Christmas, uh, one of the things we're looking at a bit in the sermons is maybe some of the assumptions that we've made about Christmas or the wrong ideas that we have and uh, correcting or clarifying some of those things and maybe seeing some things in the Christmas story. Because we're so familiar with this story, we hear it told, um, but sometimes we don't actually dig into the text and uh, we might discover some things that we've, we've always brushed over in the past. Last week, uh, Peter spoke on the theme of the virgin birth and I trust that was helpful to think through why, why is the virgin birth of Jesus uh, important to the Christian faith, important enough to be included in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and, and you saw the, um, the account from Matthew's Gospel last week. Uh, this morning we're looking at this um, visitation of the angels to the shepherds and the shepherds to Jesus uh, at his birth. Uh, as you may know, I've recently been involved in uh, some Christmas plays in local schools, government schools in the area, and after we present the play, there's uh, an opportunity for the students to ask questions. The two most asked questions uh, across all four schools we went into were, is this a true story or a made-up one? And, if this is a Christmas play, why didn't you have a Christmas tree or presents, or Santa. Now, the protocols around Christians going into government schools mean those questions need to be answered very carefully. The person who answered the questions had to distinguish between what historians say about the historically verifiable aspects of the New Testament story, such as the certainty that Jesus, King Herod, the wise men did actually exist, there were real people. But then to distinguish between that and the Christian claim that Jesus is the Son of God and more than just a Jewish rabbi whose followers made claims about him. They also have to be careful not to say Santa isn't real in case the younger children who still believe in him or their parents get upset. It's a bit ironic, isn't it? We're not allowed to say that Santa's not real. We're also not allowed to say Jesus is real in terms of what the scriptures say about him. More than any other generation, our children are bombarded with fictional stories, movies, streaming TV, online sources. Young children, like very young children, often can't distinguish easily between what's fact and what's fiction, and that's a normal part of childhood development. But as they get older, they learn to tell the difference. And for many of them, the biblical stories are relegated to the realm of fiction, of fairy stories, with nothing really to say about the here and now. At the same time, they're watching all of these blockbuster fiction stories of today without realising that those fictional stories they're watching are still communicating a narrative. It's still shaping their thinking to bring it into line with the cultural ideas of the day, along with increasingly reinterpreted and 
written accounts of history that are designed to train them to understand, maybe in a negative way, things that our forefathers viewed in a positive way and vice versa. But the Gospel will always be countercultural. It will always cut across the flow of popular thinking. We will always get the question, is this really true or a made up story? Because the story of Christmas cuts across our culture and our human thinking. We can be tempted to try to be relevant by altering our message or altering the way we present it to try and reach the next generation. But in reality, the Gospel already is relevant to all people in any place, in any time, in any culture, and its relevance is seen in the fact that it cuts across culture and it gives people the only true alternative to the emptiness and the futility of sinful humanity's cultural trends and thinking. So we need to just keep proclaiming the true historical message of Jesus Christ. The historical message of his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection and his coming return. We know Luke was a historian and along with the other Gospel writers, Luke makes it clear that the incarnation of the Son is firmly and immovably grounded in history. There was a point in time and space that God stepped into his creation as a creature. It's something that never happened before and will never happen again. There were many occasions in the Old Testament when God made himself known in a visible way, sometimes appearing in what appeared to be human form, but it was only just that. It was a manifestation that only appeared to be human. But as we heard last week, the Son was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He took on our human nature, while in the same way not diminishing his divine nature. Still truly God, he became also truly human. Now Luke gives us historical details that might feel a bit irrelevant to us who know very little about Caesar Augustus and probably nothing at all about Quirinius, if you even know how to pronounce Quirinius, governor of Syria. How many of us could look at a map of Israel and Palestine and point to the locations of Nazareth and Bethlehem without help? Well, regardless of how much we know about these people and these places, we can nevertheless say that this is an event that stands at the turning point of human history. But Luke's doing more than just saying that we know it's a historical event. He wants us to see the contrast between Augustus and Jesus, between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, between earthly lords and rulers and the king from heaven. Now Augustus had been ruler of Rome for over 30 years, nearly 30 years, and he would rule for another 14, uh, 
the longest reigning uh, Roman emperor. He was the first ruler to officially be called emperor. And Augustus was his title. It meant majestic and holy, august. Roman writings claimed that he had a miraculous conception being conceived by a serpent. His birth was described as a gospel for the whole world and they call him God, Son of God and Saviour and they claim that he brought peace, hope and good news. Augustus was the first Roman ruler to welcome the idea of people worshipping him as a god and a temple was built so that he may be worshipped upon his death in the year 14. Now historians agree that Augustus is one of the greatest human rulers ever in terms of what he achieved and the legacy he left. Every Roman emperor after him for 14 centuries had the words Caesar and Augustus in their title because they wanted to emulate him. What a contrast then between all the pomp and the grandeur of Caesar Augustus and Jesus in his birth. Luke gives some details here that might seem a bit superfluous but they're designed to bring about this contrast. He could have stuck with only mentioning Joseph's lineage back to David but he also points to the fact that he came from Nazareth in Galilee. Both the region of Galilee and the town of Nazareth were looked down upon by the Jews. They were part of the original northern kingdom. Here's part of a conversation between Nicodemus and his colleagues on the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, meaning one of the Sanhedrin, said to them, does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So he's he's defending, he's sticking up for Jesus here. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So to ask, are you from Galilee, was an insult to suggest that someone isn't actually a true Jew. They couldn't countenance any suggestion that a prophet, let alone the Messiah, could come from Galilee, this place of dubious character. Now, there was, in fact, one Old Testament prophet from Galilee. Do you know who it was? Jonah. But, of course, we know his story. He was a reluctant, disobedient prophet who only did the right thing because he was given no choice. To add more social dirt, we're told that Mary was Joseph's betrothed but was pregnant. Early on, when Joseph had thought that Mary had become pregnant from another man, he was going to dissolve their legal betrothal so that she would have time to marry the other man before being found out so that there would be no scandal and she wouldn't be shamed. After being visited by the angel and being told Mary's child is from the Holy Spirit, 
We're told in Matthew's Gospel he went ahead and married her. Yet here they are, months later, described still as the couple who got pregnant out of wedlock. They're already married, that's why they're together. He wouldn't be taking her with him unless they were now married, but they're still known as his Mary, his betrothed, who's with child. That's the reputation they had to live with. Today it wouldn't be an issue, would it? But in the first century it was scandalous. Now only Joseph legally was required to go to Bethlehem for the census, but he probably took Mary with him not only to care for her in her last weeks of pregnancy, but because she would have faced shame and ostracisation from her community on her own in Nazareth without him there. Jesus' family tree contains a number of women who'd have been considered of dubious character. Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, the mother of Boaz. Ruth, the Moabite, Gentile, who married Boaz and then became the great-grandmother of David. And then Bathsheba, the Hittite, with whom David committed adultery, the mother of Solomon. We should dismiss one of our romantic images of Mary that have been created by centuries of mythology and art. Well, we know that Mary herself had true faith in the Lord and was obedient. It's unlikely that her community would have seen her as a pious woman of faith. Many would have seen her as an adulteress who, according to the law, should have been stoned. Then we're told of the humble circumstances of his birth. Now, the scenario isn't actually as bad as we may make it out to be. We may have images of them in a filthy, smelly cave or stable out the back. Uh, We should dismiss the images of them going to the local motel looking for a room only to be directed by the innkeeper to the shed in the backyard. This word inn simply means guest room. A regular Jewish house would always have a guest room so that they could practice hospitality in obedience to their law. So Joseph and Mary would have come to the home of one of their relatives, as was the custom, who they had a duty then to provide accommodation for any family members, no matter how distantly they were related or how crowded their house would have been from the influx of visitors because of the census. Houses also, so they had the guest room, they had in the middle they had the living and sleeping area and then they would have an annex into which the animals would be brought at night to keep them safe, which had an open window into the living area so you could feed the animals from without going outside. So it seems that this annex was converted into a, an additional guest room So Mary and Joseph wouldn't have been alone or uncared for, but it's still a humble setting. Only the unsanitary food trough of a manger for his bed. 
And then we see the announcement of his birth being made to shepherds. Now culturally shepherds were on the lower rungs of society. They were often treated with suspicion. They were more like the hired hand that Jesus spoke of in his Good Shepherd speech who have no concern for the sheep because they're just paid to do their job. Because of this, uh, they weren't allowed to be a witness in court, for example. Uh, Living out in the country, they were often suspected of supplementing their pay by robbing travellers. So instead of this announcement being made in the hallowed halls of power, God chooses, as he often does, the most unlikely people not only to be the first to hear the message but to be the first evangelists who go out and tell the message. The wonder of those who heard the shepherds was probably a wonder at at how such men could have or at least claim to have such insights into the mysteries of God's kingdom. They're just worthless shepherds. So on the surface of this story, what do we see? The most powerful man in the world decreeing an empire-wide census so that he could consolidate his power and raise more taxes. As a result, a poor couple are forced to travel over 130 kilometres on foot, at least a four-day journey, from the back blocks of the empire, of the the land, while pregnant and then give birth and have to sleep with the animals. And only those in Bethlehem who heard the shepherds would have known. The rest of the empire, the rest of Israel, was completely oblivious to this child born into obscurity. So in light of this, the words of the angels seem almost nonsensical as they spoke of a saviour who is Christ the Lord and peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. But it's also in these seemingly irrelevant details that Luke gives us what we see is happening behind the scenes. While Caesar Augustus seems to be in power, And while it felt that the Kingdom of Rome was in charge, we see pointers to the fact that these events are all fulfilments of the promises of God, of the Father's plan, which he had already predetermined from the beginning. So let's go back and look again. Firstly, Luke mentions that Joseph and Mary come from the town of Nazareth. There's an intriguing line in Matthew's Gospel which tell us that after Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt, when Herod attempted to kill Jesus, and they returned to Nazareth Nazareth to live, we're told he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, nowhere in the prophets is the line, he shall be called a Nazarene. But there is this prophecy. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. 
and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This stump of Jesse is the royal house of David, the son of Jesse, which was cut off with the exile to Babylon and to the time of Jesus hadn't been restored. King Herod, not only was he not from David's line, he wasn't even a Jew, according to the flesh. But out of the roots of this cut-off stump will come a branch or a shoot. Now the Hebrew word for branch is nezer, from which comes the name Nazareth. So Jesus, the branch, grew up in the town whose name means branch. For his entire life and even beyond his death and resurrection, Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth, which to a Hebrew Aramaic speaker, when they heard Nazareth, they'd say, oh yeah, that means branch. Lowly in the eyes of the world, but truly and prophetically significant for those who had eyes and ears. Secondly, Luke tells us that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. Now he could be reinforcing Mary's virginity here, but that would be obsolete because he stressed that in chapter 1. And he doesn't even need to use the word firstborn if he was simply saying that she had a son. This is deliberate language he's using. This word firstborn is the same word that's used in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then in everything he may be preeminent. See how this word firstborn is not just about birth order, but about status. By using this word, Luke is pointing us to this fact that this child is the ruler over all things in creation and the ruler over all people in redemption. He identifies him as Mary's firstborn, which reminds us that Jesus had no human father, but also because family trees were normally followed through the line of the father, not the mother. So this description, Mary's firstborn, is kind of out of the ordinary. But it reminds us of the very first gospel promise. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Eve and Mary stand like bookends to this great story of redemption, with Eve receiving the promise of the future offspring, firstborn, and Mary seeing it come to pass in her firstborn son. God's choice of shepherds wasn't merely because they were considered lowly people. The status of shepherds in the scriptures is rather different to how they were viewed in the culture. 
Disdain for shepherds was a pagan thing, not a biblical thing. You might remember the story when the sons of Jacob first came to Egypt. Their brother Joseph said to them, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what's your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. For whatever reason, shepherds and herdsmen were on the bottom rung for Egyptians. However, in that story we see that the Lord had dignified these shepherds by choosing this rabble of nomadic keepers of livestock to be his holy people. He hadn't chosen any of the great cities or the great empire civilizations of the day. And their own occupation as shepherds would be, for them, one of the images of how the Lord would relate to them as the shepherd of his flock. We know the story of David. David was the youngest of eight. He wasn't included in the lineup when Samuel came to find a new king for Israel because he was out in the fields minding the sheep, the job of the youngest in the family. It's not that he was too busy, it was that he was considered unqualified by his father. But he was the Lord's choice because he was a man after God's own heart. Now when the Lord chooses people for salvation, as he's done for us in Christ before the foundation of the world, He doesn't look at any qualification within us because no human being has any qualification to be saved. But in choosing a king for his people, we were told he looks at the heart. Now, of course, the state of David's heart wasn't so as it was because of himself, but it was because of the Lord's work in him. So David couldn't claim any glory for being selected but nevertheless the Lord's work had made sure that he was the right man for the job including all of his experiences as a shepherd that would have taught him how to be a shepherd to the people of Israel. But also so he could teach the people what it means for the Lord to be their true shepherd. He could shepherd Israel because he knew the Lord is my shepherd. Now all the kings after David who turned away from the Lord and did evil were promised judgment. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord." Going. Behold the days are coming, we heard this at the beginning of the service, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch 
and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. There's the branch image again. The Lord himself will do the job that these kings had failed to do by regathering his people and he'll place over them this branch of David who will oversee the flock faithfully and forever. So when Jesus called himself the Good Shepherd, he was claiming to be the fulfilment of all of these prophecies. He's both the Lord who gathers the sheep and he's the appointed shepherd who lays down his life to redeem the sheep from death. So with this backstory, it makes perfect sense that the shepherds are the first to hear and proclaim his birth. In the eyes of the world, their occupation is one of the lowest, but in the eyes of God, they're the perfect representative of him, the good shepherd. Now finally, notice what the angels say about what will be the sign or the evidence that the child is both the Saviour and Christ the Lord. It's not that the baby is in swaddling cloths, because that was the standard practice in Israel. Every newborn was wrapped in cloths. No, the sign is that he will be in a manger. This isn't the way in which this is the way in which they will identify which baby is the one. Sign is another word for miracle. It always points to a spiritual reality behind the physical. So the manger points to the identity of its occupant as the Saviour. Christ the Lord would be the Saviour of his people, not by stepping upwards, but by stepping downwards. Philippians 2 tells us that Christ took the form of a servant by being born in human likeness and then in his humanity he humbled himself. It wasn't a humiliating thing for the son to be made a human being because human beings are by creation made in God's image. We're crowned with glory and honour, we're told in Psalm 8. We are created like that precisely so that we would be the perfect, honourable form in which the Son would enter his creation. No, the humbling came after his embodiment as he began a life of perfect human obedience, starting with the humble manger and ending with the shameful cross. So his descent from the glory of heaven to the manger set the trajectory for his life, downwards, not upwards. This downward trajectory from heaven via the manger to the cross is how he revealed the glory of God that the angels sang of, the glory of the Father who has willingly sent his Son and the Son who has willingly obeyed and come to us. 
Caesar Augustus has been credited with establishing the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which describes the period of roughly 200 years when Rome enjoyed a golden age of expansion, of prosperity and peace and order. But it was a peace that came because of the iron fist of Augustus. In the same way that we might say North Korea today has peace with a stable government and no uprisings amongst the people. The peace on earth that the Saviour Christ the Lord brought was not what the world expects. Unless something has changed between me writing these words yesterday and preaching them today, there are currently 22 wars being fought around the world and war I'm defining as an armed conflict with more than a thousand conflict-related deaths in the last year. That's how some people define it. Um, Well, we focus at the moment on the Russia-Ukraine war. But a lot of these wars have actually been ongoing since the 1970s. Uh, The number of fatalities in the Russian-Ukraine war in total actually stand at number 14 in the list of fatalities, although in the last year some estimate up to 185,000 people have died in that conflict. There's never been a time since Cain killed Abel that the human race has not been at war with ourselves. And not much has changed even since the beginning of Christianity. simply means now that we have nations who have historically identified as Christian go out to war against other nations who have also identified as Christian. Jesus never promised that the world before his return, would be free from wars and rumours of wars. Did you notice though that the peace of which the angels sang is not for everyone? It's among those with whom he is pleased. What makes God pleased with a person? Not that they've been a good boy or girl, God isn't the heavenly Santa who makes a list of those who have been naughty or nice and then gives them gifts or withholds them appropriately. What makes God pleased with a person is simply whether they have become one with his beloved son with whom he's pleased. Not through what they've done, but through faith in him, simply trusting in Christ's work, not our own. The peace that Christ brings on earth, right now, before the day that he will bring absolute military political peace and the end of all wars, it's a peace between human beings and God, a peace established by the blood of his cross. By his death, we now by faith have peace with God. We who were his enemies, we've not merely been conquered, we've been reconciled to him. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 
This peace gives us the assurance, the guarantee of God's perfect justice, of his abounding grace. And so having peace with God, we may also know by faith the peace of God. Philippians 4.7 says, The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there is an actual objective peace that's been won between us and God. We have peace with God. We may also know the subjective peace, the assurance that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ. When we know these two things, we can stand firm, we can stand confident, even if the world is falling to pieces around us. Confident that, as Romans 8 says, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.